This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members and it's open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits like a credit card APR average that is 4% lower than the industry's, member-only exclusive rates, and more. Visit NavyFederal.org slash manliness for more information, or you can call one 888 842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app today. Again, navyfederal.org slash manliness. Message and data rates reply. Visit navyfederal.org for more information. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The health benefits of fasting from food have gotten a lot of attention in the last several years. What's often forgotten in these discussions, however, is that fasting has been practiced for thousands of years, not only for the sake of the body, but for the spirit as well. My guest today has written a book, The Sacred Art of Fasting, that explores the different ways fasting is practiced by all the world's major religions and how it can be practiced by individuals today. His name is Father Tom Ryan. He's a priest and author. Today on the show, we discuss the reasons for making fasting a spiritual discipline, how this discipline is practiced within several different religions and how it can still be practiced by someone who isn't religious and how to get started with this universal age-old discipline as well. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash spiritual fasting. Father Tom Ryan, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. So you wrote a book called The Sacred Art of Fasting. Before we get into what makes fasting sacred, let's talk about the health benefits because that's there's a lot of talk. People are doing fasting today for health benefits. So what are some of the health benefits of fasting? First of all, I agree with you that there are very real benefits to fasting. I think we need to recognize simply that the body is a microcosm of the earth and just as there's a whole host of toxins that are poisoning our Earth's ecosystem, so it is with our individual physical bodies. Especially challenge in our era, in which previously unknown, unique synthetic chemicals and so forth are being developed and tried out on us in different foods, fasting allows the body to rest, to detoxify, and to heal. Normally, in addition to digesting food, which is the body's biggest job, the body works to eliminate wastes, to fight diseases, to ward off sickness. It replenishes worn-out cells, nourishes the blood. And when it's relieved of its biggest job, which is the digestion of food, the system can then catch up with some of its back work. And our body, through fasting, is cleansing itself and healing the parts that are ill. And some of the benefits to which people attest are you just feel healthier, the health improvement claims that one finds in the literature on fasting, it covers a wide range, uh, like sufferers of such assorted ailments as constipation or hay fever or asthma, or peptic ulcers, colitis, and so forth. They witnessed that their symptoms were significantly alleviated or disappeared altogether after a fast. And they also witnessed to how they felt more tranquil. You know, how we sometimes turn to eating because we're, well, anxious. We don't really need the food, but eating distracts us and gives us something to do. And in conjunction with that, by and large, people sleep better when they have a regular fasting practice. 
Nearly half of the U.S. population complains of difficulty in getting to sleep, staying asleep. Well, it's what's going on in our internal organs that often keeps us awake. If we're at rest, sleep's going to flow much more naturally. If our body is not well being troubled by overeating or heartburn or bloating or indigestion, it also helps us free up some time for deeper pursuits. Certainly, fasting or eating rather is meant to be one of life's chief joys. And when people sit down together, it should be an event that closes the door on routine, opens a new space and time in which the food that's passed from hand to hand becomes a symbol of deeper sharing for us around the table. But the meal experience is meant to be more than just putting food into our bodies, but so often it's just that, something taken on the run and eaten alone. There are very real health benefits of fasting. So there's been a lot of attention to the benefits of fasting to the physical body. But what a lot of people, I don't know, maybe fail to recognize or remember is that fasting is actually a spiritual discipline that cuts across religions and it's been around for a long time. So what what do you think? How do you how have you come to personally understand fasting as a powerful spiritual discipline? What is it about not eating food that makes makes it a spiritual discipline? That's a good story. I had Taking a leave, I would have to say, like most other members of my church, from fasting and abstinence as regular disciplines of the spiritual life. And this was back in the 1960s and 70s. And my first assignment after being ordained uh, as a Catholic priest in 1975 was to the Catholic Student Center at Ohio State University in Columbus. There was, in my first year there, a day of fast for world hunger sponsored by the University Campus Ministry, provided me with a new experience in fasting. I have to say it was the first time I'd ever gone a whole day without food. There was a prayer vigil that evening at which people gave the money that they would have spent on food that day. Half of it went to a neighborhood soup kitchen for the homeless. The other half went to the organization Bread for the World. Well, something in that experience touched my heart and left me with intimations of uh, power and fasting that I wanted to explore further. So I began to keep my eyes open for books about fasting. It was a revelation to me that so many of the things people said in these books had no necessary or explicit connection to God. There was obviously a significant side to this practice that I had simply missed, and the things I read only deepened my interest. What was I reading? Well, several reasons that repeatedly surfaced in this literature at the time related to what is most often cited as a motivational factor in fasting, namely body ecology. Many people said they fasted simply to give their physical selves a rest, a holiday. The argument just kind of went along the lines of, well, the body is constantly absorbed in the work of digesting food metabolizing it into energy, eliminating the waste materials. And to go without eating from time to time is to reward our bodies with the same kind of vacation that we give our minds after we've been working hard, reading or writing. Fasting, in short, gives the body a chance to renew itself. It's a time in which the body burns its rubbish. It's kind of like a house cleaning day. The list of motivating factors that I was reading about were quite long and impressive, you know, just cite a few of them. 
One was you feel better physically and mentally. Another was, you know, save some money on food. Another was give the whole system a rest. And of course, clean out the body, sleep better, and so forth. Well, those reasons, of course, were the ones cited in the books on the health shelf of the bookstore. And in the other literature, the pamphlets in the church bookstores or in the rack at the back of the church, it was all about God, and usually in a Lenten framework. There was a major disconnect in the two kinds of literature that I was surveying. Material from the health food store gave you the body ecology approach, and the one from the church, the spirituality approach. What I didn't find were books or articles that help people integrate both the physical and the spiritual benefits of fasting. It doesn't have to be either or, I told myself. It can and should be both, because we're not just bodies, and we're not just spirits. We're embodied spirits, you might say, in spirited flesh. So what's good for me physically is good for me. What's good for me spiritually is good for me. There's only one me to which it all comes back. And confining a means of spiritual growth to the six weeks of Lent made no sense to me either. I thought, well, if this is a valuable practice for those six weeks, then it should have something of value in it to recommend it for the other 46 weeks of the year as well, shouldn't it? As a spiritual life practice, it did not make sense to simply box it up and write Lent on that box. So I decided to explore these questions further by preparing and promoting a Lenten Bible study series called The Adventure of Fasting. People, I think, were kind of drawn even by the title because they certainly hadn't considered this an adventure. But we began with a survey of all the passages in fasting in the Bible, and then we talked a good deal about its human roots and the virtues of moderation and temperance. We strove, in short, to articulate a holistic approach, one dealing with the human person as an embodied spirit. On the one hand, we wanted to discover the value of fasting as an act of faith, hope, and love, a religious act directed toward God. We saw in the tradition how people fasted to focus the heart, turn to it as a behavior that clears away the thousand little things that clutter the mind, and we saw it as an action that renews contact with God, kind of like removing the rust and corrosion from the car battery, say, to enable the current to flow more freely. And another On the other hand, we also wanted to recognize the physiological dimension of it. If there is a lot of clutter and excess that could be removed from our bodies would benefit. And unable to find a holistic resource on the subject that dealt with fasting as a seamless unity, I wrote my own, entitled it Fasting Rediscovered, a Guide to Health and Wholeness for Your Body-Spirit. I emerged from that series of discussions with a fresh appreciation for fasting as a way of communicating with God and as a way of caring for our inspirited body. Shortly thereafter, I started fasting a day a week. It was the beginning of a journey that continues to the present, one in which my own practice has been enriched and challenged by what I've learned from fasting in other religions. Well, I'd like to get into some of the details about how other religions practice fasting. But you've mentioned a lot of the health benefits of fasting, but you also argue there's a spiritual dimension. Like, What are the spiritual benefits of fasting that you've found, like broadly speaking? Always when we voluntarily go without food, it's because something else is more important to us 
It might be an early departure, a slim waistline, or a feeling of physical well-being. When it's done as a religious act, say, in the Christian tradition, at the heart of it is simply this. God, you're number one for me. You're more important than life itself, which food symbolizes for me. And the fast brings home to me in a real and concrete way that God is the essential source of all life and well-being. Focus away from food to God is deliberate. Yes, these other goods are important. Yes, I need them. But all the needs in my life, if traced down to their deepest core, are rooted in my single greatest need, which is for fulfillment from the hand of my creator. So from time to time, I you know, can forget just which needs are the most important and my priorities become confused and fasting cuts through the drift and ambiguity, kind of like a meat cleaver coming down on a butcher's table. It's a concrete, decisive act that says, you, Lord, are the, you are the still point in my turning world. And please don't ever let me forget it. So for you, I will upset my routine today of three meals because you're the God I worship, not my work or my routine, which becomes all too important for me sometimes. For you, I'll give up meeting my colleagues and friends for lunch today because even though I need them and like them, the love and acceptance I need from them is only a reflection of the love and acceptance I need from you. For you, I'll live with these hunger pangs today and let them speak to me of my deepest hungers. Our hearts are restless, Lord, until they rest in you. Some of the values, I think, that the major religions express in fasting as a spiritual practice is that fasting as abstention from food and drink for a designated period of time is intimately connected with religious observance. And the religions that practice fasting encompass the vast majority of people on the planet. You know, from Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Native Americans, and so forth, you might justifiably conclude that any spiritual practice embraced so universally has to have something going for it, wouldn't you? When you look at fasting in the different religious traditions of the world, there's a wider field of values that emerges. Not only physical and mental purification are there, but other values too, such as self-restraint, social solidarity, penance, attunement to God. And it doesn't take long to see that certain values underlying the practice emerge as commonly acknowledged and shared amongst the religions. In the religious experience of humankind, fasting has always been a prelude and a means to a deeper spiritual life. Failure to control the amount we eat and drink disturbs the inner order of our embodied spirit. So fasting is a choice to abstain from food at certain times in order to put our attention on something more important to us than ourselves or our sensory appetites. As a religious act, fasting increases our sensitivity to that divine mystery always and everywhere present to us. It's a passageway into the world of spirit, inviting us to bring back a wisdom necessary for living a fulfilled life. It's an invitation to awareness, the call to compassion for the needy, the cry of distress, and even a song of joy. It's a discipline of self-restraint, a ritual of purification, a sanctuary for offerings of atonement. It is a wellspring for the spiritually dry, a compass for the spiritually lost, and inner nourishment for the spiritually hungry. Remarkable, isn't it? 
to note how in every culture and religion and history, fasting has been an instinctive and essential language in our communication with the divine. It is. And let's, let's get into how the various world religions practice fasting and what it means to them. So we'll start with Judaism, because that's what you start off in your book, The Sacred Art of, Art of Fasting. What role does fasting play within Judaism? Well, for Jews, one of their key reference points is Moses' fast of 40 days and 40 nights, talked about in the book of Exodus, and how Moses' fast established a unique connection between fasting and the presence of God, and from this event sprouts the Mosaic Law and the need for purity in the presence of the Lord. And the Torah lists a number of reasons for fasting, namely means of purification, means of showing self-humiliation, symbol of mourning after death, repentance for sins. The symbolism of fasting in the Torah has many faces, but all were done with a specific purpose. No act of fasting was done with the intent of merely denying the body itself, but rather as an expression to God of true intent. And in terms of how that translates into concrete practice, well, fasting is obligatory for all Jewish adults. And there are two major public fast days, about five minor public fast days, and of course, private days of fasting. The two major public fast days, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, and Tisha B'Av. Yom Kippur calls for no eating, drinking, washing, anointing with oil, wearing of sandals, no work, no sexual intercourse. It's a 25-hour fast beginning at sunset the evening before Yom Kippur and ending one hour after sunset on the day of Yom Kippur. Fasting on Yom Kippur is a repentance for the wrongs Jews have committed against God in the past year. So if a Jew has sinned against another person, the Jew must seek reconciliation, righting the wrong, before the start of Yom Kippur. And as for Tisha B'Av, there are the same requirements as for Yom Kippur, namely that the fast commemorates, in this case, uh, the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. And there are also five other minor fasts in Jewish practice commemorating some national tragedy. These are times of purification, repentance, reconnection with God. The fasts last from dawn until sunset, and no one is permitted to eat breakfast if one arises before sunrise to do so. But one, one is permitted, rather, to eat breakfast, yeah, if you arise before sunrise to do so. Well, what are some of these minor fasts? Uh, one is called the Fast of Gedalia, which commemorates the killing of the Jewish governor of Judah. And then there's the Fast of Tevet, which commemorates the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem, which is also Memorial Day for Jews who died in the Holocaust. A third is the Fast of Esther, which commemorates the three days that Esther fasted before approaching King Ahasuerus on behalf of the Jewish people. And a fourth is the fast of the, un, of the firstborn. And this commemorates the fact that Jewish firstborn males were saved from the plague in Egypt. And that fast is observed by firstborn Jewish males on the morning before Passover. And the fifth one is a fast of Tammuz, 
which commemorates the day when the walls of Jerusalem were breached. And then in addition to these two major and five minor fast days, there are private fasts, such as a bride and groom fast the day before the wedding. The fast ends when they share a cup of wine under the wedding canopy. The purpose is to review and renew their lives. That gives us a feel for fasting in Judaism. Fasts are sometimes observed on the anniversary, the death of a close relative. But overall, the motivation is that fasting facilitates the process of teshuvah, which is return to God. And are they, besides abstaining from food and drink, are there, is there anything else they need to do? Besides, and also intending the fast to be like a spiritual fast. Are they supposed to do anything else? Pray, uh, give alms, things like that? Yes, those certainly do find expression in Jewish practice as well. And I think uh, that sinking of, say, the personal practice of fasting with some kind of donation to others is very, very much strongly expressed in Islam, particularly. For Muslims, fasting is one of the five pillars of Islam and one of the highest forms of Islamic worship. And the Quran prescribes fasting that you may learn what they call taqwa. And taqwa is translated as self-restraint, piety, or Allah consciousness. Taqwa is derived from a word meaning protective shield. And those who achieve taqwa will gain the good of this life and the hereafter. Fasting is a means for people to protect themselves against evil and wicked motives. It protects the person from succumbing to evil. And it protects society by preparing people to work for the general good. A person who achieves taqwa is in a state of constant awareness of God. He or she thinks about how to please God by doing good and guarding against evil. So fasting for Muslims, uh, as well as for Jews, is a means of learning self-control, developing sympathy for the less fortunate, and thankfulness for all of God's bounty. The primary motivation is to please God. And the secondary motivation is to fight your own whims, your own desires and to solidify the community, to try to feel the pains of the hungry. And the intention, again here, can be made during the night before going to sleep or made when one gets up before dawn. And as dawn breaks, the first of five daily prayers uh, that Muslims practice are offered. And throughout the day, Muslims remind themselves that they are fasting for the sole purpose of pleasing God and seeking God's mercy. The fast is broken as soon as the sun sets, with no delay, and having a few dates with water is traditional. And in terms of motivation, I'd say fasting is between the individual and Allah. In denying one's desires during the fast, and because Allah watches, the faster is forgiven his or her sins as long as their fasting is done out of true belief. So a Muslim who fasts, attains Allah's watch over him or her, which keeps them away from evil. But there's a strong social dimension to the fast among Muslims. Individual and personal spiritual development is not the purpose of fasting in their holy month of Ramadan. Spirituality is communal, 
There's no going off to a mountaintop or forest retreat or desert monastery to develop a personal relationship with God alone. The fasting is to happen in the streets, in the homes, and places of business. And this communal spirituality and solidarity are expressed through a social network in which resources are made available to help those who are left without protection or support in society. Resources are made available for those who lose their means of livelihood or are incapacitated, those who can't earn enough to meet their needs. This heightened sensitivity to the plight of unfortunates in the community is very much a direct result of fasting in the Muslim tradition. When a faster feels hungry, well, she's more mindful of those who are always hungry. The social dimension of Ramadan is manifest at each sunset each day. It's a common practice for Muslims to break the fast with dates after the custom of the Prophet Muhammad, and that's followed by a sunset prayer, since everyone who eats the evening meal at the same time, people are always gathered in each other's homes to share the meal. After the 30 days of fasting at the end of the month of Ramadan, the month is observed with a whole day of celebration called Eid al-Fitr. And on this day, Muslims from around the village, town, or city gather in one place to offer a prayer of thanks. It's traditional to wear new clothes, visit friends and relatives, exchange gifts, eat delicious dishes, especially prepared for the occasion. Outside Ramadan, there are other times recommended for voluntary fasting following the traditions of the Prophet. Among them are Mondays and Thursdays of every week. A few days in each of the two months heralding the coming of Ramadan. And on the sixth day following the festival of Eid al-Fitr. While it's understood that the only obligatory fast is that of Ramadan, regular fasting throughout the year is encouraged to help maintain the Allah consciousness achieved in Ramadan. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Sometimes one change can make all the difference. Hair Club knows this. That's why they're inviting you to become part of the Hair Club family to see how getting the most out of your hair can change your life. Hair Club is the leader in total hair solutions with a legacy of success for over 40 years. Whether you're looking to revitalize the growth of your own hair or learn more about the latest proven methods for hair replacement and restoration, Hair Club professionally trained stylists, hair health experts, and consultants will craft a personalized solution to ensure you feel your best and get the most out of your hair. See for yourself just how powerful great hair can be. You can go to hairclub.com slash manly today and get a free hair analysis and a free take-home hair care kit. It's all valued over $300. It's hairclub.com slash manly. Again, you'll get that free hair analysis and free hair care kit all valued over $300 again one more time hairclub.com slash manly also by Captera. remember 1989 no I'm not talking about Taylor Swift's album I'm talking about the year the world wide web as we know it was invented we've come a long way since then so why does it feel like the software you use every day at work is stuck in the past take a leap into the future by finding the right software for your business on captera.com the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business with over 700,000 reviews of products from real software users Captera has everything you need to make an informed decision search more than 700 specific categories of software from project management to email marketing no matter what 
what your business needs. Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. Here at AOM, there's only three of us full time. So we've relied on a lot of business software to get more done with our, with our small team. And finding business software in the past, big pain. You do a Google search, the results you get, usually not that helpful. You find something, you're like, does this actually do the thing I need to do? And the site doesn't really tell you. What I love about Captera is you can get reviews from real users who can tell you, yes, this thing will do the thing you think it will do, or no, it won't. So you don't waste time or money. Visit captera.com slash manly for free today to find the right tools to make 2019 the year for your business. That's captera.com slash manly. Captera. That's how you're going to spell it. Here's how you spell it. It's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A.com slash manly. And now back to the show. You also talk about Buddhism has a tradition of fasting as a spiritual discipline. What role does it play there? Well, Buddhism, I pause because before becoming enlightened, the Buddha was known as Siddhartha Gautama, and he had a minimal familiarity with his personal story, on our part, rather, a minimal familiarity with his personal story, I think is necessary to understand how fasting is perceived within Buddhism. Siddhartha Gautama, who lived in about or across the 6th and 5th century before the Common Era, was the son of a king who ruled the lands at the foot of the Himalayas along what is today the border between India and Nepal. He left home at about age 29, gave up his princely life, became a wandering ascetic, seeking the answer to the questions of why people get sick, grow old, die. In short, he sought a satisfactory answer to why people suffer. So he set off to study with different masters. And after learning what they had to teach him, he still did not believe that he had found the way to liberation. And when he encountered five mendicants along the way one day, he was inspired once again to take up the ascetic life and practice difficult austerities, among which were fasting. For six years, he dedicated himself to this path, taking only the barest minimum of food and drink. Physically weakened and emaciated, he decided in the end that this was not the way to liberation. And he remembered an earlier experience in his life when he had sat under a rose apple tree and attained firmness of mind through meditation. And he reflected that this was the true way, and he must return to it, path of meditation. So to follow this path, he realized, would require physical and mental strength, and that he must eat and drink for nourishment. So yes, given the experience and conclusions of the Buddha about the extremes of asceticism, one would expect to find the value of moderation firmly ensconced in Buddha's spiritual practice, and such is the case. There is an appreciation for the contribution that fasting can make as a method of purification and as a method for practicing self-control, but care is taken to avoid extremes. All the main branches of Buddhism practice some periods of fasting, usually full moon days and other holidays. Fasting is a method for practicing self-control for Buddhists, a method of purification. And depending on the tradition, fasting usually means abstaining from solid food with some liquids allowed. Buddhist monks traditionally have no solid food after the noonday hour. Some monks fast as a method of freeing the mind. Others fast to aid yogic feats like generating inner heat, such would be with the Tibetan Buddhists. So there is a difference of practice there among Buddhists, and it is one moderately engaged with. Let's talk about Christianity, uh, because that's, you know, you, you're a Catholic priest, so that's where you're coming from. And I, I thought it was interesting, you pointed out in the book, 
that in the New Testament, Christ doesn't talk much about fasting. He he fasted. That's how he started his ministry, 40 days, like Moses. But then after that, he didn't really talk much too, too much about it, mentioned a few times. But despite him not talking too much about it, it's become a spiritual discipline within Christendom. So for Christian, what's the purpose of, of fasting? I would say, as you note, on the face of it, Jesus, as well as uh, one of his main followers, the Apostle Paul, refrained from making it a requirement of their followers. And Jesus explained that seeming paradox in his response to a question about why his disciples didn't fast, like those of John the Baptist. And his response was, well, the wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But he said, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And fasting will then be a recognition of something new that is already set in motion, though not yet completed, namely the reign of God in our midst. And during this time, his faithful and mystical union with their Lord, wait with quiet joy and busy hands and vigilant preparation and deep longing for his return and the fulfillment of his reign. That, I think, is one of the primary three major themes in the history and practice of Christian fasting, namely mystical union and longing for fulfillment. Another major theme in Christian practice we might call liberation through discipline. And here we enter the penitential motif, which is probably what people associate most strongly with Christian fasting. Penitence is always oriented toward freedom and liberation, though this has not always been clearly grasped. In Christian faith, penitence is not about expiating sin, for that acquittal has already been granted. We tend to think that God will love us if we change, but God loves us so that we can change. (laughs) And penitential practice and discipline enable us to appropriate and make real in our life the freedom given through grace. They help us readjust our priorities and remind us where our real treasure lies. The entire tradition of monasticism in Christianity, for example, bears witness to this. The preaching of the church fathers is clear that whatever saving is realized through one's fasting belongs to the poor. Gregory the Great preached, the one who doesn't give to the poor what he saved but keeps it for later to satisfy his own appetite does not fast for God. So Augustine, another of the great early teachers, for him, fasting of any kind, if it's to elevate the soul, has to fly on two wings, prayer and works of mercy. Fasting, if we were to reclaim the best elements of the tradition, I would say that the church in every age has to interpret these old truths in new, fresh forms. And in our age, the climate of spirituality is holistic, incarnational, and practices are embraced due to their liberating, life-giving potential, rather than being aimed at punishing the body, you're compensating for guilt. It's not just for Lent, but it's for Christian life. So if prayer, fasting, works of charity, and justice form the core of Christian life and are inextricably linked, how can any one of them be quarantined to just one season of the liturgical year? They're all essential elements of Christian living throughout the year. And of course, In Christian practice, it accords priority to that day in the week when Jesus revealed God's immeasurable love for us, namely Friday, the day in which he died on the cross. A valuable point of reference here is the pattern in the early Christian centuries 
Uh, fasting was generally understood as abstinence of all food until evening or just one meal a day from after supper the evening before up until supper the next day. And it also has found meaningful expression in preparation for receiving the Eucharist, foregoing whatever meal precedes Sunday worship, creates a psychic as well as physical face space within. And when something or someone greater is coming our way, we're generally willing to put the eating on hold, and that's the whole point there. But as I've noted, its approach is holistic. I'm not just a body and a soul, two things, but I'm an inspirited flesh, one reality. So it's a flexible instrument of the spiritual life that can be worked with creatively. And it often has traces of quiet joy within it even. I think it's only when fasting is experienced as a body language of spiritual communication, namely mystical union with the risen one and longing for future fulfillment, then we can understand why fasting is characterized by even the quiet joy. It literally is an embodied prayer. Do you think fasting could be a spiritual practice for someone who isn't a theist or maybe isn't religious? Can it still be a spiritual practice for individuals like that? Yes, indeed. Um, as we've noted, there are real holistic factors involved in the practice. As Augustine noted, that early Christian teacher, certainly you've deprived your body, but to whom did you give that which you deprived yourself? Fast then in such a way that when another has eaten in your place, you may rejoice in the meal you've not taken. The challenge is to hold the personal and the social dimensions together. And anyone can do that. We can become so fascinated by and enamored of the sheer physiological process and benefits of fasting that it might erase everything else from our minds and ends up being just something we do for our own personal health. But practicing fasting for personal cleansing alone drains the transcendent dimension out of it. So we want to keep in mind the distinctive nature of fasting as a religious act and is something done for others as well as for oneself. I think what makes fasting an art is holding the outer form and the inner intention together in harmonious balance. And what makes it a sacred art, as I try to stress in my more recent book on fasting, what makes it a sacred art is its motivating self-love and other love. So it sounds like for someone who's not religious, doing a fast and intending it to be for someone else, that could just be as simple as donating the money that you would have spent on food to charity or something like that. Exactly. So think outside of yourself. Well, let's let's say someone's listening to this and they want to get started with fasting as a spiritual discipline. Like, What's the best way to start? Should they just go right to a 24-hour fast or do you recommend people start slowly? What What's your advice on that? I think the best way to begin in fasting is to ease into it. Start by giving up just one meal, but do it with purpose and intention. Frame it with prayer. Then in the following week, drop two meals. And, you know, if your religious tradition allows the option of taking liquids, take them. What to drink? Water and juice fast are the two primary forms of fast practiced. Water-only fast tend to provide more of an intense fasting experience. And if one has never fasted before, juice and water fast will be easier and the best way to begin, perhaps. It enables you to maintain your accustomed daily energy level 
while continuing to work and exercise if you choose to do so. A juice fast will help the body to detoxify and heal, though to a lesser extent. On the other hand, it will also keep the desire for food more alive through the taste of the juice, whereas in water fasting, the desire for food passes more quickly. Both are good, but they're different. In longer fasts, those differences become more important than they are in a one-day fast. But overall, I'd say water, juices, herbal teas, quiet the self so that it can hear and be more attentive to the divine and focus more on that inner presence. Drinks like black coffee, herbal teas, soft drinks stimulate the central nervous system at a time when we're trying to give the self a rest, space and time for focusing and more internal realities. What if you can't fast from food for some reason? Can you still practice fasting as a spiritual discipline? Fasting can relate to more than just food and drink. If your health or your age or your life circumstances or those of any you know do not permit of fasting in the traditional sense, then make one or more of these ways of fasting part of your life on a regular basis toward the same end. What do I mean by alternative forms of fasting? Well, you can fast with your eyes, a little less TV, online, staring at the computer screen, a little more introspection and reflection on your life through keeping a journal. Or you might fast with your ears, listening more to your inner heart and spirit than to television or the radio, iPod. (laughs) And you might listen to and let yourself be challenged by the words expressed in the scriptures you read that day. You can also fast with your hands. Just back off from the things that agitate you. Take time to sit and reflect to rest and observe. Make time in your schedule to just put empty hands together in prayer. And you can even fast with your feet. Become more tuned to the modern compulsion to be always on the go. Resist that impulse. Maybe offer yourself a daily quiet half hour of reading that nourishes your spirit. Learn quiet sitting and meditation. And yes, One can also fast from something like anger, resentment, bitterness. Get to the bottom of why you're angry or resentful. What's the hidden demand underneath? And do the hard work of talking it through with the other or expressing clearly what it is you're asking for. Pray for the grace of forgiving those who've hurt you. We can also fast from judging others, unhook from conversations in which others are being disparaged or contribute something positive to balance the negative things that are being said. And before making any judgments, just recall how God looks compassionately on our faults. So there are lots of possibilities here. Are there not? There are, there are. And it sounds like the thing that separates fasting from just abstaining from food and like fasting as a spiritual practice is the intent. You have to intend it to be a spiritual practice for it to be a spiritual practice. That's right. And we don't want to be the ones who, in our generation, lose contact with the medium, the message, the practice of this rich and strong spiritual tradition that surfaces in all the religions of the world. When you find a spiritual practice surfacing in just about every world religion, you know you're onto something very true, something very deep and universal in human experience. So if it's something that you haven't ever tried or 
have stopped doing, why not, especially, for example, if you're a Christian, take the opportunity of this Lenten season to re-engage with a life-giving practice known as fasting. Well, Father Tom, is there some place people can go to learn more about your work? Yes, I have a website where one can learn more about the work that I do as the director of the Paulist Fathers North American Office for Ecumenical and Interfaith Relations. And that website address is www.tomryancsp.org. Well, fantastic. We'll put that in our show notes. Well, Father Tom Ryan, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Brett. My guest today was Father Tom Ryan. He's the author of the book, The Sacred Art of Fasting. It's available on Amazon.com. You can also find out more information about his work at tomryancsp.org. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash spiritualfasting, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AWIN podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find our podcast archives for 480 podcasts there. Also, the thousands of articles we've written over the years about personal finances. We've got articles about fasting. You name it, we've got it there, artofmanliness.com. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McCary, mind you not only listen to the AON podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.